0: Sitting on the rim of time, waiting for a breath, some foothold on the mountainside, some place to take a stand, over and over again, disappointed, until that that grasps floats. On the eddy of time. Saying. This is body found. A river. Carrying everything. And nothing. Sitting on the rim of time. Waiting for a breath. So I thought this evening I would uh, further the discussion that went on this morning, uh, uh, simply the importance uh, of our relationship to here and how, um, in a very practical uh, way, uh, we can begin to... Uh, inhabit uh, here in a, uh, a wise and continuous uh, way. This last year, when I <clears throat> took off for this pilgrimage for a year, <coughs> I had certain questions that were seemed seemed important. And one of these questions was uh, simply a relationship to this word uh, emptiness. And so for that year I would go and uh, I was with many different teachers. I spent probably a third of the time in retreat and uh, two-thirds studying, which I'm not a great uh, scholar of any kind, but Uh, Just, in a sense, trying to find uh, different angles uh, at here. And uh, what was it that uh, was essential uh, about the continuity uh, of here? in so many ways, this practice is so simple. You know, it's just, uh, shut up, sit down, you know, and observe. You know, uh, I remember there was a, one of my teachers in India that, uh, a person, the first day they came to retreat, they, uh, his instructions the first e- evening was observe your what he thought he heard was observe your desperation. <laughs> you know, and so for that evening he observed his desperation, and of course the next morning when the instructions were given again, he understood uh, that the word was observe your respiration. <laughs> Simple instructions. (laughs) So in this uh, practice of... um, Finding, in a sense, a resting place uh, that uh, doesn't uh, fix your experience uh, but allows you again and again uh, to re establish this uh, here this connection and we come here and uh, uh, the uh, first evening that I spoke I talked about that we had to stabilize the attention then we had to have uh, some way of having uh, in a sense turning our attention once it's stable uh, into uh, observing uh, or having insight uh, into our experience, and ultimately, hopefully, hopefully, seeing uh, what what is captivity and what is freedom. And last night, Gil kind of continued, continued that piece in the sense of. Um, speaking of the things that cover uh, cover what is so what's true right now the practice of sitting uh, in its uh, nature uh, is that we start simply by uh, noticing this simple uh, experience of the breath and at the same time we have to have this awareness of what It is a component of. And so tonight I'd like to explore a little more about the body from a point of view that as a culture, uh, we have found as many means as possible uh, to disassociate uh, from our uh, physical body, and that that is part of the kind of cultural reality uh, that in a sense, holds us in captivity, keeps us from having this continuity of, uh, of awareness. In the uh, Balinese culture, when a baby is born, one of the ways that uh, that child is honored uh, in its uh, progress is that uh, it's been in the mother's womb for three months. I mean, nine months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see. My mind's going tonight. Uh, and that when that child is born, uh, that uh, first of all, in all cultures, they wrap that child uh, in, uh, in material that holds the arms and the legs uh, in, in a, in a uh, I don't know what the word would be, uh, but it's held uh, in that container of the cloth, and then it's held by someone in the family for 90 days. Right. And then at that time, then there is uh, that process that the child goes through of, uh, in a sense, um, finding its way into the world uh, without uh, pressure to be something, but just that process of Uh, of naturally working uh, in uh, a big kind of scary world from that point of view. In most native cultures, uh, one of the truths of a native culture is that uh, it loves uh, a child simply because the child is a child uh, and uh, has that uh, quality uh, that they hold dearly called innocence. And in a sense, uh, they have that connection. And so in a sense a child uh, is its own unique uh, (coughs) clock in its own time that it grows and evolves. Now what's true in our culture is somewhat different. And uh, especially going back to probably the I'm not sure when it was, 30s or 40s, and forceps and neon lights. And, uh, but an idea that somehow uh, this idea of individualism, uh, this uh, power of uh, what makes you tough, uh, is to uh, expose you. Uh, in a sense, to the elements. And so in that process of exposing you to the elements, in a sense, uh, one of the things that uh, goes along with that uh, is that uh, the child, first of all, the simplicity of a child, is that innocence, is that... uh, it is worthy of love. You know, very very simple message. You know, there's a helplessness and there is uh, this longing to be loved, to be held, to be seen. One of the truths of our culture with this idea of the. Uh, um, that our parents longing for us to, um, in a sense, uh, be successful in their image, is that we have to, in some way, uh, perform. And that performance uh, is based on a very simple truth, Is that if you want to be loved, then of course, body training, uh, learn your alphabet, do good in school. Uh, You have to do something to be loved. You can't just be to be loved. And so, in that process of seeing that somehow how we will be loved is that we will need to perform. To perform means that uh, from that place of innocence, uh, that place of non-comparison, this place of, in a sense, just being or connected, then we have to separate out and begin this process of what? Comparison. We have to begin to start comparing uh, so we can assimilate Uh, the needs and information in a way that then allow us to be loved. So we become good doers. And in that process of learning that uh, that kind of comparison it's interesting to me one of the things that is in that innocence that happens when we develop comparison very young is that it um, minimizes a simple thing called joy. The comparing mind. Uh, It, in a sense, abandons uh, that innocence and also abandons its joy. So, uh, we then uh, find that uh, even those who uh, Don't experience any form of trauma uh, in the growing up part, still have that separation. And they begin to recognize that the life of the mind is uh, where our possible happiness lies, where our possible happiness lies. And so we develop those, in a sense, those critical skills uh, to get what we want and to keep away what we don't want. And so it becomes a very, in a sense, uh, also external experience. And part of that is based on uh, simple survival mechanism. That uh, particularly those who have experienced any kind of trauma, uh, right back to even birth trauma, uh, will scan their environment uh, constantly for a feeling of safety and to get what they want and what they need. And so I'm just trying to give you a kind of a picture here of uh, how this happens. Uh, in this way, I don't see it as uh, personal. I just see it as uh, something that uh, is instilled. and then if there's more uh, some kind of uh, life trauma uh, that's involved, that that separation is even greater. It's just about being loved. (laughs) Uh, Simple. Also, uh, another piece of this that goes along with that uh, in early childhood is that when you have uh, difficult uh, physical circumstances, uh, one of the things uh, we learn is... uh, uh, again, that supports this is that when it becomes too uncomfortable in a situation, then uh, we disassociate. So we actually have a dissociative culture uh, in its, uh, what, its fundamental uh, sort of cultural basis. And I think it's I can, I can say this is fairly broad in general. Uh, There's certainly very specific uh, problems within this. But I'm trying to just give the general picture. And so in this process, it's very understandable uh, when you come to this practice and your training has been to scan your environment and has been, in a sense, to use your critical thinking and to look at Uh, uh, the way you will be seen is what you do. How you will be valued is what you do. So you come here. This in many ways is uh, the Buddha called it going upstream. Uh, It goes against the grain of the culture. Uh, this, in many ways, does not uh fit into that uh view this isn't gonna make you i, I think sometimes uh this isn't gonna make you more money this is if anything this is kind of the downward mobile path okay well, you signed up. You know, so, but what is it that, okay, if we know this and we see how that is and you go, well, why is it so difficult to stay here? You know, why can't I stay with my breath? Why can't, you know, I stay in my body and stay connected? You know, it's okay. That's all right. You know, it's interesting. My years in Asia, and also working with uh, Native American culture um, being part Native American it's always been this interest that they don't talk uh, about embodiment it's not something that they need to talk about and this last year it was interesting, it was something I would bring up with my Tibetan teachers and uh, it's Something they didn't speak about because they couldn't understand uh, because of the the way that they, in a sense, were brought up in their uh, in their family uh, cultural conditioning uh, was very much embodied, and so they didn't they don't approach it from that process. And I've seen over these years how I've asked these questions and I haven't, I've got sort of a blank stare sometimes. Or uh, I remember many years ago, this was, Mary Ori was in Dharamsala where I was this last year and there was a meeting of uh, Western uh, teachers with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and someone asked the question about embodiment and he was, he didn't get it. And then somebody told him, western well we're they aren't really in their bodies they're in their heads (laughs) and you know it was a revelation uh the realization that uh there wasn't this connection you know and we you can take it back to descartes or whatever and say you know split of mind and body but from buddhist psychology see that doesn't even exist Uh, that the, actually, when we talk about uh, this practice of wholeness, the practice of wholeness is uh, a practice of when we start to train the mind uh, very simply to be with the breath, which is simply what? A piece of the body uh, that actually all, I, I'm not sure how many, somewhere 210 bones in the body or whatever. That they all move with every breath. Uh, this whole uh, experience is based on the realization uh, that uh, the information uh, is comes from the whole, uh, not from uh, just uh, the. Uh, sort of cognitive association one of the things I've always been uh, watching for over all these years retreats is watching the end of retreats it's kind of always it's always been kind of funny to me how everybody's here and they're all so mindful and you know they've been here for 10 days and they're all together and they leave all this junk you know they, it, I mean it's amazing amount of stuff that's left and I think, well, just because they started talking and, you know. But I, I, I've actually reassessed that. And I realized that we're training in a different kind of mind here. Uh, what is really the mind that we uh, have, are trained in in our culture and is highly regarded and uh, valued is associative memory. Okay, so how we connect things that's what it is. What's this? This is actually a different kind of memory. You could call this momentary memory. So it's actually uh, the mind that keeps remembering here. And that it trains itself uh, not uh, in a sense uh, needing to rely uh, on information but to rely on uh, the in a sense the totality of the experience itself here. Now in many ways uh, I think teaching in Asia uh, it's important to teach about discipline and effort and mind uh, simply because they're so connected already in their body. Here we actually have to teach a lot more uh, about uh relaxation uh about embodiment about right now where's your experience no and it's not that uh the mind in a sense uh it's uh it's duty uh, its duty is to keep the organism safe and and in a sense uh, preserve it from harm and kind of get what it wants or needs no. but the practice is to turn and say well that doesn't mean you're going to get happiness it's simply uh means that you can set things up that could mean that, but it doesn't mean that that's there. And what this is pointing to is that uh, as you train the mind uh, to uh, be with the breast and breath and start, in a sense, uh, softening and, and feeling uh, what's here, uh, then there's a natural inclusion. And if you could value this to a point where uh, for these next, um, next week, uh, you could simply uh, keep bringing the mind back to rest uh, in the fullness of the body. And there are times when we get scattered, we can uh, come back to the breath and stay with the breath. But other times, it's really the wisdom uh, of uh, this capacity to, in a sense, be very inclusive. Uh, Include your whole body as an experience. When I uh, first went to Asia one of my uh, understandings, cultural understandings was that uh, there was a possibility of uh, transcending. Uh, In a sense, transcending here. And that if I could uh, reduce my experience uh, of my body uh, that uh, I could find some relief or release that what I believed uh, to be some form of awakening. And the reason I say this is because I was sitting on a hill in Kathmandu, this was in the late 60s, with actually Lama Yeshi there, who was my first teacher the first year. And we were sitting and they didn't. there was just maybe six or seven students then, and we were sitting up on this hill overlooking Kathmandu. And he said to me, you know, you have this idea that if you can go out far enough, and of course, I had just come out, you know, this was the 60s, so there had been a lot that I had learned about how to go out. And it also, as a child, uh, one of the things was uh, due to trauma and experience, I had learned how to transcend my experience. I was really good at that. You know? And I thought, well, now I could perfect this and uh, then I could burn all the bridges. And I would, you know, that would be that. You know? <laughs> and in talking to him, he said, you know, you've got to go. He pointed to me like this and he said, you've got to go through this. You somehow believe that you'd go out, and, but you have to go through this. And it really began this whole change of mind that I had to go through this and one of the truths of going through this uh, is, means that uh, all the bridges that we burn I was hoping I didn't have to in a sense uh, deal with them again but this practice says you have to turn around and begin to own uh, own uh, all of it. And so a lot of times here, uh, I see this process of these old stories that come up, you know, the kind of your old tapes, and you begin to run them, and, and they hold you in captivity for a period of time. And you think, oh, that's, in some sense... Uh, oh, I'm not doing the practice, some judgment around that. And I don't know if that's so. I think that this process of untangling uh, is that we have to somehow uh, find a new relationship. Uh, And that new relationship is not exclusion, but is inclusive. So it means that somehow we have to come to a connection to that. Uh, Not always an easy uh, part of this. But uh, the process of untangling uh, that every moment of mindfulness, every time that you're in the midst of Uh, we know there's lots going on in there. And uh, what's going on there is that a moment due to the collective or due to your momentary memory, you remember to be here, to be mindful of what (laughs) you're experiencing. You break into the continuity of that and you begin to actually break down the... Hardness or the solidity of that um, attraction that uh, attachment, and if you had ten moments you know, and this was a ten moments of this from the past that somehow held you in captivity and you wondered how this how this all worked it's basically that every moment of mindfulness begins to add a moment to that story uh, to how we hold it from a very solid block and what will eventually happen is if there's enough moments uh, which are really neutral moments that a piece of that will break off and why they talk about this is a process of purification a process of untangling a process of undoing and as that undoing happens here uh, then this capacity to start reclaiming uh, the the really the honesty and the simplicity uh, of uh, I, I can i the only word comes up is the wholeness no. because then the mind is awake to its wholeness. Uh, It's embodied. It holds all of this. And holding this, it has the capacity, uh, so, uh, if the mind can then uh, hold this, then it actually can hold What's around it? Uh, what's behind it? Uh, what's in front of it? What's to each side of it? Uh, one of the tendencies that happens in the, uh, this training of disassociation is that we have a tendency to not stay in ourselves. And staying in yourself means that you really love what's here. But for whatever reasons, we have a tendency to abandon ourselves, to fall forward to uh, uh, abandon or try to fix And from this practice point of view uh, that uh, undermines uh, your wholeness. And so our practice is to remember again and again and to begin to train ourselves completely to become comfortable in a sense comfortable in your skin and you will have to do this over and over and over Uh, What's interesting is the mind can take and hold something, an idea of you, and make it very solid. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. That's just the nature of the mind. The practice uh, of wholeness, of, uh, in a sense, inclusion, which uh, this practice is about, is the capacity to uh, break in to that solidness and inform us from a place that speaks uh, not of uh, survival or fixation, but of fluidity, of flexibility. Uh, You can never bring your mind into the same body. You can bring the mind into the same idea, but you can't bring the mind into the same body. It is simply this flow, this flux of experience uh, that is no different than the creek down there. It, it, is in, it is constantly flowing. So it begins to break up the solidity Naturally, of the fixed views that we create. And the most defined view we have is, is who we think we are. You know, uh, that in a sense we're like these uh, little uh, boxes. And these boxes are created through our uh, self-imagining. And this practice of uh, bringing the attention into uh, embodiment, this connection which is telling us Uh, that what we're experiencing uh, is a flow. And so it begins to thin out the solidity that holds the box together. And as we begin to break down that uh, solidity, It's not who you are is going to go away. It's actually if anything just simply the walls are thinned out some. And if the walls are thinned out some then there is the recognition uh, that uh, there is uh, enormous great vast space uh, beyond the confines uh, of that self-created all these words, delusion, (laughs) uh, fantasy, assumption, you know. Um, And so we began to turn our attention, the possibility is to turn our attention towards not towards something um, but in that experience of uh, uh, the mind connected to the body in that sense of its wholeness then it recognizes that uh, any kind of solidifying of those walls of who we think we are does not bring us happiness, but actually, many times, confusion or chaos or suffering. And so we began to look uh, at the flow, the movement itself, and began to recognize that there's uh, something else available. So, and it's not part of concocting. Okay. It's not concocting. Uh, It's something that uh, is recognizing, uh, I'll use the word emptiness or availability. Uh, Not needing to make it into anything. And so, it is actually a good kind of analogy for me that I use is an empty chair. It stays empty. It's available. So this moment when we're connected is available. We don't split off. We don't make it into anything. We just... Make it available. Then there's no time. There's actually no past, no future. There's no place to get lost. but it's available. What's interesting about when it's available and we don't make up some other view about it, but we leave it available, then the walls themselves thin out and uh, what seems like the interest in nothing or emptiness or this uh, availability uh, is a connection. Uh, the walls are not as solid. Therefore, you and I, that illusion of separateness uh, no longer uh, interferes. Uh, What we create in that box sometimes uh, separateness, loneliness uh, is not a question. Uh, what is the question is uh, interest in uh, the non separateness, you know, the same, and in that recognizing the same, then the mind has connected. With the present and the body, and recognizes that there's nothing it can do with that. It's just simply available. And therefore, then uh, that non separateness uh, is actually the heart. It doesn't need to do anything, but it does things anyway. So I think that's good. So don't get lost. You know? It's... um, You know, and if you do get lost, one of the descriptions in the sutta about the mind, about thinking, uh, I love this description, uh, is of a boat out in the ocean. And there is a way out in the ocean. And there is a bird on that boat and that bird is always flying off looking for land just like our thoughts and always returning to the ship, always returning to here. Uh, There's no place to land out there no matter what kind of great schemes or ideas or plans, anything you have there's no place to land so it's okay you can't go too wrong same boat This talk was given by John Travis at Vajripani on August 6, 2007. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.